1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribbon and today my guest is Paul Lay. Paul is the editor of History Today and the author of Providence Lost, The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate, just published by Head of Zeus 2020. Paul, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Before we start talking about Providence Lost, this really magnificent new book you've written about Cromwell's Protectorate. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your day job? Well, I'm the editor of
0: History Today, um, which is a long-established monthly journal, uh, which started in about, goes back to 1951, so we're almost uh, 70 years old. And uh, basically the mission of History Today is to take serious scholarship. Most of our articles are written by academics and informed by new academic research and to take that out to a wider public uh it's, it's never going to be a mass market but for those people who are engaged with history and are interested in looking beyond the cliches then uh, it's maybe the magazine for them
1: it's um it's something obviously you spend a lot of time on but you've, you've spent a great deal of time working on this book providence lost the rise and fall of cromwell's protectorate what's the background to this book paul
0: well, the background is really uh, goes back about 15, 20 years when I was a uh, mature student at Birkbeck, uh, University of London. Um, and I was taught by a really formidable group of early modern historians. And they included people like Barry Coward, Vanessa Harding, Felipe Edither, Michael Hunter, Laura Stewart, it really was a terrific lineup. Patrick Little was there as well. And there was a great deal of concentration on the mid-17th century, obviously. But I always was interested in the protectorate. Um, Barry Coward and Patrick Little in particular were experts on that period. And I always was puzzled as to why this extraordinary experiment in republicanism and written constitutions and all kinds of different um, initiatives, why it was so neglected in British history. If we think about the mid-17th century in general, it tends to be a neglected period if we compare it to, say, the Tudor period or the Torians or even the Wars of the Roses. And yet, even within that, the poor relation is the interregnum and the protectorate. And I felt almost a kind of moral duty to try and address that because... What made it doubly puzzling was that there had been so much terrific research, much of it actually quite accessible on this period, and yet it had almost no purchase with the general public. So I tried to address that.
1: Now, the the name of Oliver Cromwell is, of course, a household name, certainly uh, in these islands where we're recording today. Um, But but the period that he's associated with most closely isn't particularly well known, as you just commented on. How, How do you explain that anomaly? I don't really know. I think the reception of the book and
0: conversations that I've had with people, the wounds uh, between those who think of themselves as Cromwellians and those who are supporters of the king run surprisingly deep. And I think there is this image of Cromwell that's grown up for whatever reason as this very two-dimensional Puritan figure uh who's very bad to the irish who's very bad to catholics who clamps down on christmas and is this rather joyless figure who's a sort of afterthought in british history really um he's understood to a certain extent as a military figure because of the sheer success uh of his army career but as a politician He's barely known and even less understood. I mean, this book is not entirely devoted to Cromwell. It's not a biography in that sense. But obviously it deals with a period when he is the most significant political figure.
1: Now, as you say, Paul, the, the book is not a biography of Cromwell, but he looms large within it, doesn't he? In, in a way, how could he not? Um, it's Cromwell's protector, after all. What kind of a man was he? described him there as a Puritan. In the book, he comes out... A beautifully rounded personality, complex personality, maybe a slight difference in his public and private personas or pleasures or pursuits? Yes, I think he
0: is a Puritan. Of course, he is. He's a very traditional Puritan, quite a conservative figure politically. He's not a person like the radical Republicans who are around him, who wished to see the end of the monarchy in 1649. I think he's quite pragmatic, and he would have preferred for it not to have come to that situation. He believes in hierarchy, essentially. I think we have to separate the two careers. What we do know about Cromwell is almost nothing until the last third of his life, until the age of about 40. He barely registers at all. And then he becomes this hugely significant cavalry commander, particularly uh, after the Battle of Newbury in 1644, when he becomes closely associated with the remodeling of the new modelled army, and in the Eastern Association in particular, and he has a series of remarkable victories that continues after the King's trial and execution. He conquers Ireland uh, in a particularly brutal and notorious way that's fed very strongly into Irish foundation myths, for example. He also conquers Scotland very much against the odds of battles like Dunbar, which is referred to as the miracle of Dunbar. And he also sees off a king exactly a year later on that most significant of Cromwellian dates, the 3rd of September, that's the 3rd of September 1651, when to all extents and purposes, the royalist threat never really approaches anything like significance again. There are lots of royalist plots, there are assassination attempts, but I don't think, militarily or in security terms, Cromwell's regime then is ever under significant internal or external threat.
1: Now you mentioned there, Paul, the importance of the date, the 3rd of September. That date crops up at several times in Cromwell's life and death, of course, doesn't it? Uh, and there's there's an association in his mind to do with that date, and which helps us understand what we might call his providential worldview. Could you talk us through what happens on the 3rd of September that stand out in Cromwell's mind?
0: Well, he has these very significant victories, and the fact that they're against the odds, and I think in particular Dunbar, that are great descriptions of Cromwell after that, acting like a kind of drunken maniac, so high is he on this victory, and this is referred to, and and I think this is essentially Cromwell being affirmed in his belief that God is on his side, and this only comes through a year later, again in 1651, with the victory at the Battle of Worcester. In the providential worldview, victory on the battlefield is the most explicit affirmation that God is on your side. And so with a man who never loses in battle, then he can only take it as read that God is very much on his side and is uh, 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 and, and he's casting every enemy aside. And that's Cromwell's fundamental belief.
1: Now, you, you describe in the early part of this book, Paul, the, the way in which that... that sense of confirmation or affirmation through provident through providential victories is really driving a cultural mood within the higher echelons of what we might call the republican movement or certainly those most closely associated with Cromwell in this period. Uh, There's a huge sense of expectation almost of of global conquest which we'll talk about uh, in a moment but but Cromwell is accruing power and those who support him are also gaining power as, as, as he does. Um, what's the religious complexion of these early years leading up to, let's say, the Bare Bones Parliament in 1653?
0: Um, you have the Civil War uh, has unleashed a whole range of religious views um, that are born of English Puritan seedbed. Um, And these come out alongside the print revolution as a kind of loggeria that takes place of different political ideas during this period. And we have things like the Putney debates, for example, in 1647, where even ideas such as universal manhood suffrage are put forward by the levelers. But there are there are. Sects way beyond what the level is one. People like the Ranters and the Diggers, who believe in universal suffrage, who believe that the land is a common treasury. All these things are boiling up. And there's there's a deep concern, I think, for order. What I what I don't think a lot of people understand about the early modern world is how important order was, stability. Uh Hobbes the great philosopher Thomas Hobbes, writes brilliantly about this need for order. And of course, when Cromwell's regime becomes ascendant, it's Hobbes um, who writes that he's quite happy with this, because this is now the new order. This can bring us stability. And I think after all the craziness of the civil war, all the sectarianism that's been there, Cromwell because of his military strength, and I think because he's the one person who can unite the army, what's left of parliament, perhaps the local gentry. This is the one figure who is the key to stability in a place that has seen chaos and disorder for a decade.
1: So Cromwell becomes this incredibly structurally important individual, the the, the head of the pyramid, that holds the whole structure together um by around sixteen fifty three you show in in the book um he, he's really moved a position of dominance and power that might be unparalleled you suggest by any other previous English ruler was Cromwell some kind of dictator in this powerful uh, position with links with the army that, that that you've just suggested
0: well it's a question that's often asked and it 's a question if one looks at the uh biographies of Cromwell's written in the 1930s, for example, he was seen as some sort of precursor uh, to the fascist dictators. I think this is wrong, because even if the aspiration to dictatorship was there, the early modern state simply didn't have the powers of surveillance. It didn't have. It, it, it simply didn't have the communications. It didn't have so much of the infrastructure that's needed for the modern totalitarian society. So even if Cromwell had those ambitions, I'm not sure he was there. Cromwell describes himself and those around him, this elect within an elect nation, which is England, the New Jerusalem. He describes them as God's instruments, and I think this is genuine and profound and sincere on Cromwell's part and on many of those around him that they are simply carrying out God's work. And I think this traces back to Cromwell's early days. So far as we're aware, he's incredibly aware of the Bible uh, and the religious liturgy of the English church. But he also has a political providential worldview, which I think can be traced back to his reading of Walter Raleigh's History of the World, which among many things is a manifesto of English Puritan providentialism that sees England as a new elect nation, as Israel was to the Old Testament, England is to the new. And it's the purpose of puritans to carry out god's work and indeed the soldiers in the new model army refer to themselves as saints they literally believe they are doing god's work on the battlefield and their victories are conclusive proof that god is on their side that they're carrying out god's work and there are various experiments with parliament i think it's fair to say that cromwell likes the ideas likes the idea of parliament but they rarely fail to live up to his expectations he's convinced at first the first parliament that's tried is something called the nominated assembly or Barebones uh, parliament which is named after one of the figures of the very puritanical name praise god Barebones, uh, which is essentially modeled on the old testament jewish sanhedrin uh, it's nominated because the people there are in theory, its members, are nominated by churches. And so they're a godly group of people. And it's essentially the brainchild of Thomas Harrison, who's a major general, who is a member of a sect called the Fifth Monarchist. So I won't go into great detail, but they essentially believe the Great Fifth Monarchy Uh, will be born in England, this providential view. You've got Rome and you've got Babylon and various other, Jerusalem and various other um, monarchies. But this will be the new one. This is where uh, God's paradise will flourish, which will be England, uh, to put it crudely. And lo behold, that fails as a parliament. And Cromwell, uh, there's a very good phrase by the historian Blair Wood, says Cromwell is practiced at not knowing. He probably wants the nominated assembly closed down. Certainly troops do that, whether they're acting on um, Cromwell's command has always been a little bit elusive, but Cromwell is an elusive character anyway. And Harrison's great rival, and I think it's fair to say Cromwell's number two, John Lambert, who despite being a parliamentarian, cavalry commander from the north, is a rather cavalier figure in many ways, but he writes something called the Instrument of Government, which is the world's first written constitution. And this basically tries to remodel the old trinity of king, lords, and parliament into a new trinity of lord protector, which is Cromwell's position that he's offered. He won't become king, you will become lord protector a council of state and what's left of parliament. And that's essentially what it does. It remodels that. And to a certain extent, Cromwell becomes slightly less powerful at that point because he has a council overseeing him. He has uh, a a parliament, what's left there. And he can't, for instance, declare war without um, the assent of the Council, so there are limitations on rule, well, but he's still an enormously powerful figure. And he, but it's not just the constitution that makes him powerful; it is the character of Cromwell and his achievements on the battlefield, and in politics so far that makes him powerful. It's a
1: combination. To, but he also falls back on army power again and again. You show in the book, doesn't he? So he has this, he has this this nodding appreciation of parliaments, and yet. Um, you show that he's also willing to to pull the rug from under them from time to time.
0: Indeed. He he has a very idealised view of Parliament,
1: as I think
0: he has a very idealised view of the English people. Uh, He talks about the people, the English, as being under circumcision, but raw. It's a terrific phrase. But what he means by that is that civil war, the victory over the king has led them some way into the promised land, but they're not there yet. And there's a lot of reform and battles still to come. And I think he's always frustrated by parliaments. And that's why he's so quick to get rid of them on a number of occasions. They don't fulfill their expectations or his expectations.
1: So Providence is always in a hurry and he's happy to, to, to move it forward. I suppose that, that takes us to the Western design, which is this project to conquer large tracts of Spanish South America around which the book is structured. What was, this, what was the Western design? Why did it matter so much to Cromwell in 1654? Why did it fail? It mattered to Cromwell and it mattered to others
0: around him because it was the fulfilment of... That English, Puritan, Protestant, uh, providential worldview that we referred to with Raleigh, for example, this had not really gone away. And there have been attempts uh, to colonise bits of the Western Caribbean. And we have to differentiate there between the Eastern Caribbean, places like Barbados, which were left alone by and large by the Spanish, and going into the Western Caribbean, where there were places like Cuba and Hispaniola and the Spanish main, the absolute centers of Spanish power in the new world, where the wealth from the mines of Peru and Mexico was brought to Colombia and and, and and, and Havana and was sent back to Spain, huge wealth that they were accruing from their possessions in the Americas. Um, And there was this belief that ultimately, once Britain was settled, and by this period, 1654, it pretty much is settled, then it was the duty of English Protestants to go out there into the world. This global Britain where they would take on the Spanish in their own territory. Spain, the proper up of the papacy, the Antichrist, Black Spain as it's often referred in almost comic book terms, uh, is to be taken on by this very powerful, stress tested, battle tested army and a huge navy which is similarly battle tested, powerful. And the plan is to go into Spaniola, which is this huge island, what is now uh, divided between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and take it off the Spanish, and then from there to make that a base where they could take on Spain. Now, this idea, as well as being formed by the worldview of people like Raleigh and Drake from the Elizabethan period, and Elizabeth, was a particular hero of Oliver Cromwell, This was suggested to Cromwell in person by a rather remarkable character called Thomas Gage. And Thomas Gage was the son of a recusant family, a Catholic English recusant family, who instead of joining the Jesuits in northern Europe, had gone further south to Spain and had become a Dominican friar. And becoming a Dominican friar He'd taken a very unusual path of going into Central America, places, Panama, Guatemala, such places. And he lived among uh, the Pokemon Maya and other indigenous peoples, learning their language, very, very gifted linguist, and obviously devoted friar and priest. But he seems to have had some unravelling of his religious beliefs there, because he comes back to England after great adventures and diversions. And he becomes a member of the Puritanical wing of the church in England, and eventually becomes quite a supporter of the protectorate. And he meets Cornwall and says, look, you know, you've only got to knock on the door and the whole thing will collapse. The Spanish are decadent, they're corrupt. Uh, they're hated by the indigenous peoples. Um, if you go in there, if you attack Hispaniola, you will win and you will be celebrated. And don't miss this opportunity like Henry the Seventh did with Columbus. This is calling you now. Attack them, use your fleet, use your army to attack the Spanish in the Spaniard's mouth, as they put it. So they prepare a fleet under uh, William Penn, who's the um Admiral, and Robert Venables, who is the uh, general of the land army there. And it's the overseeing of the fleet, is done as John Desborough, who is um, uh, an ally, a great, great ally of Cromwell and in Cromwell's family as they are. They're quite incestuous in terms of their relationship, the people at the heart of the regime. And they plan this expedition, but they don't plan it very well. There's not enough water, which is absolutely crucial in the tropics. There's not really enough food. There's not clothing that's suitable for the tropics. There's an air of hubris around the whole thing. And to cut a long story short, it fails catastrophically. And there is a consolation prize. They don't, the fleet doesn't take Hispaniola. It does take Jamaica, but this is seen as very much a kind of wooden spoon because Jamaica is very undeveloped. It's the last private property of the Columbus family, and they pretty much left it to rack and ruin. And so they take that, the fleet comes back, the two commanders, Penn and Venables, are thrown into the Tower of London, and Cromwell is crushed because he is facing defeat for the first time and he turns around and he has to ask the question why has god forsaken me why has the hand of god been withdrawn after all these victories after all the success what are we doing that the hand of god has been withdrawn
1: and it, it was a reasonable question for him to ask wasn't it his invasion of scotland had um demonstrated how he could be, David, against a different Goliath, especially at the Battle of Dunbar, where English losses of, what, around 20 or 30 compared with, what, two or 3,000 losses on the side of the Scots. And yet, in the Western design, this was Cromwellian England advancing to Spanish South America with the largest fleet, I think you say, that had ever left a European shore. Um, and and, and f- facing a tiny number of inhabitants in some of these islands. Uh, and, and we're absolutely rebuffed by it. So in terms of the providential narrative that you used to, to to pull the book together so artfully, this is a moment of real existential crisis, isn't it? So how does Cromwell respond? What, does this begin to, to unravel his providential expectation of inevitable success?
0: I think it does. I think it sows doubt. I think it sows great doubt. And the answer, the logical answer to this is that well, England, you know, we go back to the England, English people being under circumcision but rule, they're still some way off the ideal of where they should be as a spiritual people, as God's elect, the elect of an elect nation. And so the obvious answer to that, and it's a perfectly logical answer, is moral and spiritual reformation. And since the uh, Attemptive royalist rising early in 1655, which is a never remotely threatens uh, the regime. Uh, there's been plans uh, to divide the country up—that's England and Wales—into something like cantons, uh, each one of which is under the control of a major general, very loyal to the regime. Insiders within the regime uh all their deputies if they have to be down in the council in london who raise militias because there's always this concern about money and the army is very expensive so they attempt to raise local militias within these various um cantons these various stewardships that they have Uh, but they find it very very difficult to work with the traditional families of power here uh, the gentry Uh, People like J.P.'s, magistrates, because many of these people are seen as usurpers. They're people relatively low-born, many of them uh, among the major generals and their deputies compared to the people they're trying to rule in their different fiefdoms. So there's always a tension there. But what they're trying to do is not only secure the country in terms of any royalist threat, and they manage that pretty easily. They're also planning to reform spiritually. So there's great concern over um, people within the church. Uh, There's great concern about licensing ale houses. There's concern about sexual promiscuity. There's a crackdown on things like horse racing, gambling, which is seen as very much cavalier activities and places where cavaliers gather. And there's also a defamation tax on royalists um, who earn above a certain income. And this is seen as particularly regressive because we've had an act of oblivion that has essentially forgiven um, all of the uh, cavaliers who don't fight after Worcester. Um, And this is seen as something of an imposition Too far from many people, unjust, unfair. Uh, But nevertheless, the major generals themselves and their deputies and the people around them, the militia commissioners, tend to live in a bit of a bubble, Uh, and they tend to think they're doing rather a good job. So they say to Cromwell, Look, you know, we're doing a really rather good job. Why don't we increase our hold over the country by calling elections? And they do so. They convince Cromwell, who's slightly reluctant about. And they convince him to call elections where actually they and their supporters don't do so well. And I think it reveals to Cromwell, by a certain extent, just how far he is from the regime having the kind of hold over the country that it would require. But also that the reform of the English people, which has been tried before and which is tried again and again and again, is not really working. And in fact is pretty much an unwinnable task.
1: Hmm. So if we skip forward, Little Paul, to, to that third of the third of September's that you mentioned, which is the date of Cromwell's death. It's obviously a stormy night, uh, as, as, as you describe it in the book, but a stormy political situation as well. There is this all of a sudden vacuum at the heart of an administration that had worked however unpopularly, generally effectively to, to, to sustain its its power and control of these islands. The navy surrounding the coast was the biggest navy um, that, that England had had. I think you, you tell us somewhere in the book that the amount of tonnage of shipping constructed in the first five years of Cromwellian rule was in excess of the amount of shipping constructed from the Spanish Armada to the beginning of the Civil War, which is just an extraordinary statistic. So if if the regime didn't face any serious external threat, and if it had more or less clamped down on the Royalist plotting, or was at least effectively monitoring it internally, why did the regime collapse so quickly after Cromwell died?
0: Because it was so dependent on one man, is the nub of it. After the unravelling of the Major General's project, which happens towards the end of 1656, early 1657. There are a number of events that point to crisis and deep crisis within the regime. First of all, in October 1656, James Naylor, who's a Quaker figure, very eloquent Quaker figure, rides into Bristol in imitation of Christ, which to most people, at that point in time, is an act of considerable blasphemy, and the local authorities don't really know what to do with him. And so he's sent to London uh, to be interrogated there and, and eventually put on trial. And this creates, well, it reveals a lot of tension between the more conservative figures, who we could call Presbyterians, who want a National church of relatively limited tolerance, something like that, of, that's present in Scotland. And those on the other side, who, like Cromwell, are more concerned with religious liberty. So they, for instance, are Congregationalists, Baptists, people on the more radical wing of Protestantism who seek uh, a wider, uh, ring it for, for, for the Protestant religion. Uh, and this is revealed in the debates over the Naylor trial and what to do with him. Some want him executed. The instrument of government only allows for six months' imprisonment, according to the uh, blasphemy laws there. So they're, they're in contradiction, argument with each other, and they sort of blame each other as to why people like Naylor are emerging again. These kind of figures who were very prominent in the 1640s are now emerging again. And so there's a desire for a clamp down there. But there's also a concern that Cromwell has better arbitrary law. Because in the absence of the Lords or the House, because that's been abolished, long abolished, the House of Commons, Parliament, becomes both judge and jury of James Naylor. And i think this is a great concern to cromwell who really does want another house to watch over the commons and indeed he addresses uh, military figures by saying you know you've got to be careful about this use of arbitrary law because the case of james naylor may be your case uh, the arbitrary law can always be turned against you and he's very very wary of this and at the same time there is an assassination attempt, a gunpowder plot put together um, by an alliance of levelers and royalists that fails. It's discovered by by the intelligence services there. There's never any danger that, that he's going to be killed, Cromwell. But it focuses minds on how dependent the regime is on this one figure. And there's a group of people who we could call the kinglings or civilian wing uh, who gather around a very uh, brilliant um, Irish politician who also has experience in Scotland called Roger Boyle um, who seek to offer the crown to Cromwell through a revision of the instrument of government called the Humble Petition and Advice. And they do indeed offer the crown to Cromwell because they want to put the constitution, as it were, on the old bottom, as they called it, to refer to the ancient constitution. People understand the powers that a king has. And if Cromwell will take the crown as Oliver I, you can restore the old balanced constitution. And you also have an effective hereditary succession uh, to his son, Richard, or his younger son, Henry, and everything becomes Quite transparent as to where people stand. Now, for providential reasons, and I think providential reasons alone, Cromwell, after considerable thought, turns down the offer of the Crown, even though the humble petition and advice is uh, accepted, it's passed by Parliament, and uh, it tightens up slightly uh, the religious liberties that were there before. But Cromwell refuses to take the Crown because it has been taken away by God and it's not his replaces and he uses the phrase I will not build Jericho again and this leads to a fundamental problem of succession who is to succeed cromwell and no real decision has been taken by the time of cromwell's death on the 3rd of september 1658 that fateful day again so richard becomes his successor. He becomes Lord Protector, but was that Cromwell's decision? Was it the Council interpreting Cromwell's decision? No one really knows, but he becomes the head of state, the most ill-prepared head of state that adult head of state that Britain has ever had. Um, he does not have the support of the army, but he does at least have the wit And the presence of mind to realise that he's not up to the job. And he resigns. And from then on, the whole thing unravels. You see the Sext and the radical Republicans within the army emerging, emerging again. So, again, to cut a long story short, um, the forces of order uh, take over, and the the Scottish army, uh, which is under. The command of General George Monk uh, crosses its Rubicon, which is essentially the Tweed, and marches south um, into London where apprentices are rioting, where money is leaving, and imposes some kind of military order. And from then on, I think it's fair to say that the only real alternative to chaos is the restoration of the Stuart monarchy under Charles II, and Charles eventually returns. And there we have the false circle.
1: Well, Paul, it's been it's been great to have you on the show today. We re- really do appreciate your time. Um, thanks for writing this book, Providence Lost, The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate. And thanks for coming to the show to talk about it. Thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.